in the uh, midst of all the medical news uh, we've been getting of late, uh, we may have missed this news item. 1,152 people were treated in hospital emergency rooms in the U.S. last year for injuries suffered while walking and using a cell phone. <laughs> so, some of the cases uh, the reporter included uh, a 24-year-old woman who, while texting, walked into a telephone pole. That hurts. Or the California man who was texting his boss and strolled into the path of a 400-pound black bear. Oh. <laughs> Apparently, things go badly when we try to do two things at once. Sometimes you got to put something down. Sometimes you have to choose. A friend of mine who's, who's a therapist uh, said to me, you know, I have a very challenging case right now. And I know therapists don't divulge details, but I said, well, what makes it challenging? And he said, well, in broad strokes, uh, the problem is this married couple came to me and the husband wants to be married to her and be father to the kids and live in the house. And I'm like, so what's the problem? <laughs> that sounds amazing. And she said, well, and he also wants the relationship with the woman next door to keep going on. Sometimes you got to put something down. Sometimes you got to choose. And this principle, which proves so often the case in life, is a bedrock principle for your life with God and mine. The, uh, the woman who co-founded the Salvation Army, Catherine Booth, put it this way, there comes a crisis moment a moment when every human soul that enters the kingdom of God has to make its choice of that kingdom in preference to everything else that it holds and that it owns. There comes a moment when you and I must choose. Throughout our Christian life, we'll find ourselves at times brought back to that place where we must make a decision Right here, right now, in this moment, will I choose God? Because what makes it so hard is that we know internally, do we not, if I choose God, it will cost me something. I will have to let go of something else. Something that's precious to me, something I'm very comfortable with, something that's become embedded in my life, something I've depended on. Some of you may be feeling this choice tonight. And my heart as your pastor is to help you with that moment so that, when, just prepare you for it so that when it comes, you'll recognize it, you'll know what's at stake, and you'll be ready to choose. So come with me then, if you would, to the end of Joshua's life when he sets a choice in front of the people of God. Joshua 24 and verse 1 says that Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. And if you're curious, today Shechem is called Nablus and it's in the West Bank. And uh, just north of Shechem stands a mountain, Mount Ebal, that uh, goes 3,000 feet up. So what you picture here is Joshua's like standing up near the top doing the talking and the people are all kind of spread out down the hillside like an open-air amphitheater so that they, they can hear him. And it says, he summoned the 
elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Now, Joshua doesn't invite them and say, like, it'd be nice. He summons them. This is like a court summons. This is a big deal. And in this courtroom, it's because they're being presented before God. Now, what is going on? Joshua knows, I'm about to die. I'm not going to be around much longer. And I've been utterly committed to Yahweh from the beginning, when I was knee high to Moses. And I've been Yahweh and Yahweh only my whole life. And that's how I've led all of you. And I know that after I leave, lots of other gods could come creeping their way into your affections, and that can't happen. So right here, right now, I'm going to gather you in the presence of God, and I'm asking you to renew your vows, to re-up, re-enlist, recommit, to make the choice you've made before, to make it again and make it for real. Joshua said to all the people, verse 2, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan, which is where they are now, and gave him many descendants, which in itself is a miracle. And God adds in verses that we didn't have enough space to print, I'm the one who rescued you from the forced labor camps in Egypt. I'm the one who got you across the Red Sea. I'm the one who kept the Egyptian army from recapturing you and doing all who knows what to you. And now you're standing in a land you didn't work for, cities you didn't build, fields you didn't plant. I've kept all of my promises to you utterly. And how then are we to respond to a God who's been so, so good? Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. To serve the Lord, you also have to throw away something else that's not the Lord. God is looking for people who will make him an exclusive devotion of their lives. He's looking for people who will love and serve him only. He wants people who will say like Joshua did that day, for me, for my people, it's God and God alone. Done. We've settled this. But he keeps getting people, if you read the Bible, <laughs> who say, well, yeah, Yahweh's pretty good and all, but I don't know why we can't keep just a few other gods too. Does it really have to be God alone? Can it be God plus? No. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, what is he talking about here with the gods beyond the Euphrates River? Well, 500 years before this, when God called Abraham from where he was living, which was beyond the Euphrates, his whole family worshipped the Mesopotamian gods, gods with names like Enlil and Enkai. There are actually, scholars have discovered in ancient texts, over 3,000 Mesopotamia gods and goddesses specifically mentioned by name. So there's a god over your city. So if your city's being attacked, you ask for the help of that god. Okay? And there's a god that you go to when you're sick, kind of like the doctor god. And there's a god that a couple goes to if they've not been able to have a child and would like that. So then, then there's a, like a god for that. 
and there's a God for your family. And you know how we say there's an app for that? They said there's a God for that. Okay. And in the words of one scholar, quote, these gods were worshipped by being flattered, cajoled, humored, and appeased. But the real God doesn't work that way. We don't cajole, cajole him. He calls us. And there's only one. And so he calls Abraham to leave his land, which means leave behind all those gods who were over your city, over your nation, all the gods that all your neighbors and, and you were worshiping at that time, and you come with me. You're going to make a clean break. I'm taking you to a land where there can be absolute and utter devotion to me, the God who has called you by name, Abram. But people tend to default to God plus. God plus a couple of the familiar gods that they kind of got used to and kind of like. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he has to tell his family, quote, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. I thought Abraham cleared them all out. Well, they kind of keep coming around. So now, in the grandson era, he's saying, purify yourselves, then let's go up to Bethel where I'm going to build an altar to God who's been with me wherever I have gone. This is later in Jacob's life. He realizes God's been really good to me. He's gotten me out of some really bad stuff. I need to build him an altar. I need to take him seriously. So all y'all, get rid of all the competitors. We're going to serve God. And he took, he, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, because earrings are where you get the gold to create the next idol, to join them. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. At Shechem. That's kind of ironic, because where are they standing? At Shechem. You would have thought that 400 years earlier, all those little Mesopotamian deities would have been buried once and for all. But nope. Joshua still has to call them out, verse 15. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So this presents us all with this utterly profound question, do we really, really want to serve the Lord? Because if we do, it cannot be and can never be God plus. It's got to be God alone. Which means something has to get thrown out. Something's got to be put away. Something's got to be buried. Something that is dear to us and we're used to and that we have looked to for meaning and for help in life. So how would you finish this sentence? In my life right now, if I'm honest, it's God plus... Mm. For me, one God that is hard to throw away is called my plans. <laughs> I worship God plus my plans. The prophet A.W. Tozier has something to say about this. He says, The Christian who has in principle accepted God's truth as his standard of conduct and has submitted himself to Christ as his Lord may yet be tempted to lay his own plans and even fight for them 
when they are challenged by the word of God or the inner voice of the Spirit. Tozier says, we humans are a calculating, planning race, and we like to say, tomorrow I will. But our Heavenly Father knows us too well to trust our way to our own planning, so he very often submits his own plans to us and requires that we accept them. How many of you right now, you're at a place where God's brought plans, you don't like those plans, and you are fighting those plans, and you're really more committed emotionally and in spirit to your plans than to God plus nothing. I've been there, friends, a lot of times wrestling, not wanting to let go of my plans, and I like them a lot better because they involve so much less pain than God's plans, at least at the beginning. (laughs) But as Tozier adds, we'd better not insist on our own way. It'll always be bad for us in the long run. So what is it for, for you, my friends? God plus I find that when preachers preach about idols, usually the things that get mentioned are external things like jobs or cars. And, and I'm sure those could be. But where I live, most of the idols are more subtle than that. Right? They hide. They're not so simple because they start as something good oftentimes. And I can easily explain why I just have to have them. Now, I don't know what that may be for you, so let me just suggest a few things. Since you and I live in America, we may have picked up one of the very popular American gods right now who is growing dramatically in the number of its adherents, and that god is called Notice Me. If you pray to the god Notice Me, he showers you with clicks and likes and retweets. A company surveyed a 1,000 kids today and said, basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? What what job do you hope to hold when you get older? And the answers were not quaint answers like teacher or veterinarian. The number one (laughs) answer was YouTuber. I want to be known for being known. And out of the top seven answers on the list, only one had something to actually do with like serving people in a way that didn't involve a lot of fame. All the other ones were, I, well, if I can't be a YouTuber, being a rock star would be okay. Or a professional athlete would also be <laughs> acceptable, I suppose. Okay. Now, many Christians living in our culture, as we do, have joined in. And it is now assumed, not just <laughs> declared by a few crazy, it's assumed among pastors who are supposed to have local relationship-building work that is, by its definition, obscure, If you want to be relevant, they say, you got to build your platform. I'm not talking about for writers or public intellectuals. I'm talking for people doing pastoral work, which could be about the worst advice I've ever heard. Now, let me be clear. Serving visibly is not the problem. Many believers are called to serve God visibly. But here's the problem. We all instinctually desire the notice that comes from that kind of public calling And we resent when we have a private and obscure calling instead of correctly seeing that inherent within the public visibility are a lot of spiritual dangers. When you get a big promotion to a greater point of visibility, you should have someone come over, congratulate you, and then you should start a prayer team, a spiritual director, and plan weeks when you will withdraw and go cold turkey from the affirmation or you will not make it. 
But no, we all got to have that notice, the visibility. Jesus, when people wanted to make him king, he ran from it. Where are the people today, the Christian leaders like Eugene Peterson, he was becoming a rock star at Regent to the point that that was one of the major reasons that led him to leave the campus. And he holed up in his cabin in Montana and wrote. Um, now, I know not all of us can do that, right? I get that. But I love his motivation. Or Sister Corita Kent, some of you might know her artwork from the 70s. Um, but anyway, she was once invited to speak and she sent back this postcard. Dear, I'm trying to be quiet. Oh, Lord, give us more leaders like that. Usually the best platform on which we can serve Jesus and do his work is to stand safely on the platform called obscurity. I really mean that. Look at Jesus' life. Most of it is that. And yet, we think it's totally possible to serve Yahweh, this is all for you, God, and serve the God, notice me. And Joshua says, no, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you. Have we not seen leaders go into disaster because they tried to serve the God, notice me, alongside the God Yahweh? God's holy jealousy is the fire of spurned love. To read the Bible, you just it breaks my heart sometimes for God. I'm like, oh man how God suffers. You can, you can describe the entire relationship of God and the human race as spurned lover. First, it was the people leaving him for the gods from Mesopotamia. Then they go down into Egypt. Hey, these Egyptian gods are great too. Let's worship them. And now God's people have barely gotten into the promised land and they're looking around at all, all these really delicious-looking new Amorite gods, the most popular one, Asherah, queen of heaven, who becomes so popular among God's people that 700 years later, Josiah walks into the temple dedicated to Yahweh, and what does he find there? A giant statue to Asherah. And he does the only thing you can do when, when an idol is brought into the place belonging to God, he cuts it down with an axe, takes that offensive image out to the city garbage dump, and burns it. But let us not worry too much about poor Asherah today. She has rebranded. I think her, her name today is My Choice. For too many American Christians today, I just got to say, it's God and this more alluring God or goddess, I don't know which, called My Choice. What's authentic for me, which of course I alone will define, which explains why, you know, like we're flying home on this flight last night and the guy next to us, it's been said five times before the plane pushed back, you must wear your mask throughout the entire flight. And every time the flight attendant passes his seat, it's down. Because I, it's my truth. I define it. It's my choice. And the my choice God is especially powerful because as always happens with the worship of idols, there is sex involved. And so then my choice gets involved with, I get to decide what I do with my urges, when and with whom, and nobody's going to tell me no. And honestly, friends, quite a few Christians have marched up the hill to that shrine. And in the church, if you call out Christians on that, some of them get it, and they repent, and they do what Joshua's calling these people to do. But some of them do not. They walk, because their commitment is actually greater to the goddess my choice than it is to Yahweh, the living God. Here's the thing. People throughout human history, 
and I'm just basing it on this Bible, is we don't have a problem with Yahweh. We have a problem with Yahweh alone. That's what we can't deal with. And in the temple of our hearts, there can be room for only one God, the one living and true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who gave himself up for us, the God who rescues us from sin and gives us hope and eternal life and a resurrection body. Are we really going to drag into that relationship with that God, some fake God that confirms in us our worst instincts? My plans, notice me, my choice, or any of the other 3,000 little deities <laughs> that constantly emerge and try to worm their way into our lives lives that were created by God for God's devotion and worship alone. So if we want to serve God, then you and I know what we have to do in this moment. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Amen.